What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. This episode is sponsored by AbbVie's gettingheretothere.com, a safe online space for the Bipolar One community to find inspiration through music and firsthand stories. Visit gettingheretothere.com to learn how advocacy musicians, music lovers, and others come together to reduce stigma and raise awareness of mental health. While you're there, sign up to be notified about additional support and resources. That's gettingheretothere.com. Today we are talking with musician, vocalist, and songwriter Dan Lampton of the band Rationale. Many of you know Dan from his work with the pop-punk band Real Friends, with whom he has recently parted ways. Dan has been a long-time mental health advocate, and Real Friends often took on the topic of mental health in their music, including songs such as From the Outside and Smiling on the Surface. Dan has been playing for years with the band Rationale, and they have a new album coming out called If the Problem Persists. This album will be out in early 2022 on Smart Punk Records. Rationale recently released a single off that upcoming album called Same Old, so check that out. Now, on the Going There podcast, we have the tough conversations to address important issues so that we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. This month, we are focusing our discussions on bipolar disorder. Dan has previously shared that he struggles with bipolar disorder, in which he describes a fairly predictable cycle. He will feel more functional at baseline, where according to him, he is more able to manage his day-to-day life. He then experiences a manic episode that is characterized particularly by having racing thoughts and pressured speech in which he's talking very quickly. During those times, Dan explained that he can be very productive in terms of creativity, but that his manic episodes can be very damaging to his health as he is often unable to sleep or eat. Dan explained that he then falls into a depressive episode where his mood is lower and he is unable to be productive. One of the things that Dan talks about is that when he is in a manic phase, he doesn't feel like he has an off switch whereby he can shut or even slow things down. And this is one of the things that makes bipolar disorder so dangerous for people's lives and well-being. Feeling more energized and creative can be wonderful if we feel like we have control over ourselves, our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our behavior. But when we don't, it can feel so frightening and dysregulating. At one point, Dan's thoughts were racing so quickly that he actually became psychotic and needed to be hospitalized. Thankfully, Dan has found a regimen of medication and group therapy that helps him feel more in control. Now, as we progress through this season of Going There, our goal is to bring you, the audience, further into the conversation. On the Consequence website and wherever you find these episodes, you'll also find a short questionnaire. Please share with us your feedback, questions you have that have been sparked by our conversations with these incredible artists, and topics you'd love to see addressed. We incorporate these responses into episodes, as well as a monthly column called Ask Dr. Mike on the Consequence website. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. 
These help other folks find their way into the conversation so they can go there with us. So let's go there and listen to what Dan has to say. Hey, Dan, welcome to Going There. How's it going? It's doing good. Great to be talking again. Hell yeah. So let's get right into it and talk about what bipolar is like for you, because the experience is different for everybody. Um, I mean, sometimes I have like a good baseline, you know, I'm in a, a place where I can function normally. Others I have, um, heightened or elevated mood where I can talk really fast, uh, come up with a bunch of really weird and crazy ideas uh, followed by a crash, which will then bring me to like a depressive state where I can't really, uh, I feel like there's a lack of creativity. Whereas during the mania, there's all sorts of things coming back and forth. And then just to, to a, like I said, like a crash, like a straight opposite, just like not really want to do much. Don't take too much pleasure in a lot of things. But uh, thankfully, I've, I think I found a good uh, cocktail, as they call it, for, for the medication. So a little more even keeled now. Yeah. And can can we talk about what each of those phases are like? You know, first of all, one of the things that some people wonder about when someone has bipolar is what baseline feels like like when you're neither in a manic nor a depressive episode what is just kind of it feel like when you are thinking all right i'm i'm kind of again at a baseline or if you want to call it kind of a more moderate level zone yeah um i mean that's just more so where i feel like i'm uh you know, because I feel like my nonprofit training tells me that uh, normal is like a setting on a washing machine. You know, it's not something we can um, we or we should apply to things like everyday behavior or typical behavior and stuff, because uh, that that can change from time to time. Uh, my baseline does change from when I'm in a depressive state, a manic state or um, neither. You know, so it's just it's just typical everyday behavior, you know. And does it typically go in that sequence that you described that it goes from a baseline, whatever that is, to a manic, then a depressed state? Is that a reliable cycle for you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, it's it's definitely way less manageable when I'm not on medication. It's kind of like one of those things where like oh, I feel good. I don't need to be taking this medication. But then it's like, no, the reason you feel good and you're, you're doing all right right now is because of the medication, you know, and I've gone through, I feel like these uh, ebbs and flows of being like, oh, I don't need the medication. I don't need the medication. I stopped taking the medication. Then after a while, I hit a manic episode, you know, thoughts are racing. I'm you know, the, I feel like the only one positive thing that isn't super self-destructive is that I, I become like pretty creative and I can, I can, you know, really crank out a lot of music and stuff, but at the expense of personal relationships and just everything else in my life, you know, will start to fall apart. And that can, for some people, create a, a very, you know, if you want to argue, mixed feelings, at least initially, about manic episodes, if they're observing that they're more creative and productive during that time? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, before I had, before we originally talked in like 2018, it was um, Real Friends was in the studio. And I was going through I had a couple things that I believe triggered um, a manic episode, like just a lot of changes in my life. Like I had uh, moved out of my parents' house for the first time. I had uh, gotten out of like a five and a half year relationship um, that didn't necessarily end the best way. So there were a lot of things. And then we were in California. So I think a change of scenery, like really uh, elevated a lot of things for me. And like, you know, we were in the studio. So I feel like I had a lot of good energy to put 
in there, but then outside of the studio, it's like, I didn't have an off switch, you know, I'd be up to, I'd sleep maybe three hours. I wasn't really eating too much. Um, and I think that the continued, I guess, disregard for my health, just, um, like exponentially made the mania worse. And one of the things that's so difficult about, and it's not even really just mental health issues. There's, there's a lot of ways that this can be problematic is that there are certain behaviors that as a society, we encourage all the way up until it's, it's a huge problem, you know? So for example, one of the things that will happen with people with eating disorders often is that they'll be encouraged if they're losing weight. Oh, you look so great. You look so amazing. You seem so confident. And nobody is sitting there recognizing that this is part of an eating disorder. This is part of a completely unhealthy pattern until it gets to the point where the person's emaciated, can't function, is, is you know literally on death's door. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, like what's going on? And I, I wonder if that's similar with manic episodes for people, because what you're describing, I would imagine both yourself and other people around you up until the very moment where they realized what was happening was sort of like, Hey, great. You know, Dan's really killing it in the studio. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, it's like I said, there wasn't like an off switch. So then it's, it's just all the time, like, you know, just, really fast speech like I feel like I was all like before I could even finish a thought when I was talking I would be on to like eight other different thoughts or tangents not necessarily able to wrap anything up so I like with a nice little bow so I wasn't making sense to a lot of people and stuff and um you know I remember I had a psychotic break um, because I didn't eat anything all day. Uh, and this was after we'd gotten home from the studio. I didn't eat anything all day. And then I had this really big, really strong, uh, pour over from this coffee spot I used to go to near my old apartment. And then I smoked a joint and this was, uh, ironically on the way to pick up, uh, my first run of antipsychotic medication, got to the car, started freaking out called an ambulance um and then i got taken to uh i got taken to a hospital um in the er put in a room and then that's when i started freaking out because i thought they were you know my mind was just like trying to come up with all sorts of things like i I felt like in the ambulance i started to be able to manage it because i had people helping me uh with my breathing and to kind of like maintain what was going on but then like once we were in the hospital, I like started thinking like that they were going to perform open heart surgery on me because I thought I was having a heart attack and all this stuff. And just like my mind came up to all these like wild conclusions as to why I was in the hospital in the first place. It was not a fun time. No, that's that sounds horrible. Um, I'm sorry you went through it. You know, for, for people who are not familiar with what it means to be psychotic, when you're in a manic episode, how does the thinking and the feelings change, even the behavior change when you feel like you're going from being in a more, I don't know if you want to call it even a traditional manic episode to actually starting to get into a psychotic episode? Um, It's just like, you know, dissociating from reality. It's like, you don't necessarily know what's real and uh, like people, like some of the nurses would come in and give me a jab of, I, I don't even remember what it was. And then by like the third time they came in, you know, I was freaking out being like, you know, what are you putting in my body? I feel like I can't, you get almost paranoid. You can't necessarily trust, um, like the input of other people and also like yourself. And it's just, you, it's hard to describe sometimes, you know, it just, it just feels like everything's not real. And one of the things that's so difficult for people when they're having a psychotic episode, especially if it's of what you're describing, like the delusional variety, when you're, you're not necessarily making up in your head, what you're seeing or what you're hearing, it's how you're putting it together. Yeah. That starts to get disconnected from reality. One of the things that's so tough about that is 
it's not falsifiable in the moment because the the delusion that someone would have versus what would be quote unquote real, the people would essentially be acting the same way. You yeah. know, whether or not you're actually in a safe place, people would be telling you you're in a safe place. But if you're not in a safe place, they would still be telling you you're in a safe place, which is why it's so hard, I think, for people to get out of the psychotic episode. And when people are trying to quote unquote reason with someone, it's so hard to grab onto that because it doesn't really wind up being inconsistent with the delusion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember at least with, with my episode, eventually I had, um, calmed down a little bit, you know, what the, the, the drugs they gave me started kicking in and then like, it had gotten to a point where I think I remember like they told me that I threw my phone at one of the nurses that was like trying to help me. And like, that's not something I would normally do. You know, I felt, I felt awful after it. And then, you know, my phone died. So I wasn't able to talk to anybody in the moment. And then um, I just went home and I remember there were people coming over to that apartment for the first time. Some of my friends that were there. And then I just was so tired. I went to bed and just passed out, you know, and it's, it's just like trying to process what I had experienced, you know? Yeah. And it's so hard. I think, you know, when you think about something like throwing a phone when someone is in a psychotic state, when they believe that people are against them, well, now every single thing, I mean, just think about it in people in their, their, you know, their kind of day-to-day -day life. If they're not in a psychotic episode, if you think that the person you're dealing with is in some ways against you or out to get you, or even in a more minor way, doesn't have your best interests in mind, you're going to interpret everything they're doing completely differently. Like, yep. you know, like giving a gift may all of a sudden be like, oh, instead of being, oh, hey, thanks. It's like, you know, somewhere between like, what are you trying to do all the way to, if you're in a psychotic episode, well, maybe you're trying to poison me. Maybe you're yeah. trying to do something to me. And it's so important, I think, for ourselves when we've experienced a psychotic episode to be kind of understanding of that, but then also to try as difficult as it may be if we're with someone who's having in the, in the midst of a, of a psychotic episode to try to be as empathic as possible and think of it from that perspective, because otherwise it's not going to make sense. Like why on earth would you be doing this? But it does make sense if you recognize that this person doesn't trust anything that they may have traditionally trust, you know, trusted before. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Um, I don't know. It's just, um, it's an odd thing uh, when your brain just stops um, believing everything that it had ever believed before, you know, like every, it, it's hard to uh, put it into words, but it's just nothing makes sense anymore. And then it's just, it's just this, um, this void almost. I don't know how else to describe it. No. And, and I think what you're touching on is, is such a, a frightening thing because we don't realize how much we rely on trusting ourselves, trusting our minds, trusting our bodies, trusting the people around us. There's so much trust that goes into basic everyday behavior that when that trust is compromised even a little bit, let alone the, the rug is completely pulled out, everything, all bets are off at that point. You don't realize until it's gone how many things rely on trust. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, luckily, um, not long after that, I was able to uh, enter into an intensive outpatient group therapy program. Uh, that helped to put a lot of things in perspective. Um, they taught me a lot of different coping skills and mechanisms. I, uh, I learned a lot more about bipolar disorder as a whole. Um, I was in some uh, co-occurring uh, programs there as well, um, but with uh, trying to think of how to describe it. The essentially 
co-occurring is like the meeting point of, uh, at least for my case, substance use and uh, mental illness uh, factors kind of coming together to create uh, the perfect storm kind of thing. Um, but through that, you know, I, I kind of, it gave me a lot more skills to to be able to ground myself um in further like episodes and panic attacks and whatnot like i had i had another panic attack while we were on the road at one point and just kind of being able to use some of those techniques uh really helped me from you know kind of dissociating you know and i had called the uh uh suicide prevention hotline not and i wasn't in a place where i thought i would hurt myself but just like kind of needing somebody to talk to you know and they were able to help me ground myself as well and you know along with the with the skills that i'd learned in the outpatient therapy you know you're bringing up panic attacks and i think that you know sometimes when we when we talk about these different issues we talk about them in terms of discrete you know bipolar panic substance use, but what you're talking about is how they all blend together. And, and one of the things that I think is important for people to recognize when they themselves or other people are struggling with a manic episode is that once your thoughts are racing, there's so many different things that can happen as a result of that. You know, and you've, you've just talked about three of them quite, or four, if you really want to say, it's like, you, you, your thoughts could be racing so much, you don't have time to reality check that you become psychotic you can just become angry because you're there's almost like an impulsivity that comes from having racing thoughts you could panic because you're 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 so amped up that your body and mind interpret that as panic or there's something wrong and you can turn to substances as a way of coping which you know to some degree in the moment makes sense i mean why not if i'm in a manic episode i'm trying to calm down smoking pot seems like it makes sense until it it makes us more psychotic yeah, yeah, that that would be the opposite for me. That was a big thing where I would I would smoke a lot, um, and the weed wouldn't calm me down. It would actually further elevate me, you know, um, which was you know kind of counterproductive based on how it reacts with um, a lot of other people and how they experience it, but. That's just something that I, you know, I have to be aware of, like where my current baseline is, if I'm going to be, you know, kind of having a drink or having a smoke or something nowadays, just like I have to be aware of how my behavior's been and my mind has been over the last like, you know, few weeks and kind of gauge it from there to see if it, if it makes sense, if I should be doing something like that, you know? Yeah. And it's, you're, you're talking about how precarious it can be because I mean, think about, and I think it's, I think it's wonderful. Like the, the, the strategies that you're talking about, you know, the medication considering your, your past recent history in, ter in terms of mood stability, you know, just kind of how you're thinking about things, reaching out for help. These are such great things, but it's also just a, a you know, kind of a statement on just how, I don't know if I don't, I wouldn't even say complicated per se, but how labor intensive managing something like bipolar can be. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it was scary at first. You know, I think if, if I remember correctly, the average age of diagnosis for it's like 25, isn't it? I, to be honest, I don't have that statistic, but that, that doesn't sound off to me. So, but to be honest, I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I mean, at least cause that that's when I got diagnosed, I was like 25, 26. So to like, on one hand to finally have like somewhat of an answer for some of the ways I'd been feeling was great. But then at that point, I don't think I really truly had experienced the height of any mania I, I would come to experience, you know, and it's just, it's kind of a scary thing finding out that late, uh, in the game, you know, when it, it's something like if it was, I guess, more easily detectable at an earlier age, like maybe say junior high, high school age, then it's like, you know, you got so much more time to prep before, you know, you really go out into the real world. But then in a lot of cases, it's the real world that 
bring some of these symptoms out and like the the everyday you know stressors that happen that that bring about these symptoms well and you talked about right initially when we were talking about one of the biggest things that people i think typically do not take into account which is transitions transitions of any kind are incredibly destabilizing physically even good ones because that's that's one of the things that people I think we'll often not pay as much attention to. They'll be so excited. You know, I'm going to college. I can't wait. Or, you know, I got this new job or I'm moving to this new town or I'm in this new relationship. And even things that are good, in some cases, especially things that are good, because what makes them so good is that you're having such a life-changing moment. And to recognize, like you're saying, just that's one of the things of everyday life that can really, really, really cause stress and then trigger a manic or a depressive episode. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And it's, it's just like I was saying earlier about um, the record we went and did in California. It was just like a perfect storm of a bunch of different things. Like I said, like I'd moved out, I'd gotten out of a really long relationship. Uh, then there was the stress of, you know, uh, cause I feel like every time we'd go in to do a record, it would kind of be like, Oh, is this going to be the last one? Is this going to like tank? Like I really got to, you know, in that one, especially, you know, cause I don't, we, we weren't exactly stoked with how our second record went. Uh, and like, you know, just a, a lot of things kind of like that we would have done differently, but now had the opportunity to do differently. I think I was reading a little bit too much into it and stressing out a little bit too much about this uh, next opportunity that then it just like drove me into the mania, which then afterwards there's the crash. My, my brain just, pumps out all these chemicals to then just go down and and then not be able to produce them for quite a while. One of the things that's particularly difficult about being a musician that a lot of people who are not musicians maybe wouldn't you know give as much credibility to or pay as much attention to is in fact how many transitions occur in a in a routine musical career, you know, transitions of going on tour, going off tour, recording an album, not recording an album, you know, having to, you know, maybe get having to go to an award show, not going to an award show. Are we going to be a band in six months? Are we not all these things that that you're talking about? It really is to a certain degree being a musician, I guess, until you're at maybe some kind of level way down the road where things you have more control. It, it seems like an almost a life built on transition. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, and like, it's, it's like an on and off switch too. Cause then it's just like, you know, we've, uh, and for me, I feel like tour was a double-edged sword for me. Cause it gave me on, on one hand, it gave me a routine every day, which I think was really healthy for me to have. You know, it's like, we got to be here at this time. We load in at this time. We sound check at this time. We play at this time. Everybody else plays at the same time for the most part every night, you know. And then I, I've got time in between all that to go explore or, you know, do what I will, prepare for the show, et cetera. But then also some of that can become idle time, which can then... Uh, you know, idle hands, the devil's playground, stuff like that, uh, drinking, smoking, all that good stuff. You know, the, I guess the rock and roll lifestyle, they say, um, you know, which I get both sides of that, you know, the routine, but then also all the vices coming out to play and, you know, not necessarily having a routine uh, or not like not a routine, but like uh, an a regular everyday, like nine to five, you know, where I got to be up early. It's just like, no, like my mornings are pretty, uh, pretty open. So if I want to get uh, messed up the night before, I'll, I'll have plenty of time to recover, you know, and stuff like that. Just kind of, uh, I guess, excuses inviting bad behavior. Well, it's, you know, one could say excuses, but also one could say, that when you step into a certain cultural framework, it just becomes much more difficult to do things 
from a different perspective. You know, as an example, if the history of touring bands was that there was no drinking, there was only plant-based eating every morning, like after a nice eight hours of sleep, people woke up and did yoga, you know, like that kind of a thing. It would be like, all right, well, who knows? Maybe, maybe then it, it would be easier to consider some of these things, but it's very hard. I think, especially when you're new in a business to be like, okay, I'm going to do things completely differently from everyone else, especially when, as you said, some of the things feels good. It's, it's fun. If you, if you can manage it to be able to smoke or to be able to drink until it's not, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, it definitely is a lot of transitions. Like you were saying, a lot of stress, a lot of, uh, uncertainty, I guess. Um, and then just like, uh, almost a hyper awareness that this could be gone tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. And, you know, kind of having your routine and then the rug just like ripped from underneath you, you know? And that's where a lot of the issues of trusting oneself and trusting the world around you can become very different, you know, and become very difficult in those moments because, you know, sometimes legitimately when in any of our lives, like, you know, we're, we're going along and then something changes and we pick it up, but it's a long time before it's acknowledged. And then there's a change. So like in a relationship, you know, you think everything's going well, and then you kind of get these vibes that maybe it's not. And then all of a sudden at some point there's a breakup and it's hard, especially I think when someone struggles with a mental health issue to know, well, when do I trust what I'm picking up, you know, I know that there's a legitimate chance that, you know, things could work or not work. I know that people might have better or worse opinions of us as a band within the band, all kinds of things. And it's hard, I think, then to navigate all those transitions again with that, that trusting yourself. Yeah, exactly. And not, not necessarily like knowing that in the past, sometimes your intuitions haven't always been accurate or you know, that you can trust them. It's like, when do you start and stop like trusting like your gut reaction or like how you're supposed to feel about something, you know? Yeah. And, and one of the things I'll say to people when I'm working with them, because this, this was actually told to me when I was learning how to be a therapist, I, I just said, you know, to one of my supervisors, like, what, what do I do? Like, you know, and they always said, you know, trust your gut. You know, I was like, oh my God, my gut is in, is in knots right now. He's like, well, you always have to listen to and trust your gut. The difference is, is that over time with more training, with more experience, with more study, your gut will be more likely to be accurate over time. But yeah. you, you can't stop trusting your gut as being something that's important because then you'll disconnect from yourself, which then you're, you're lost, even if it's for a good cause, because you think that your gut's telling you something wrong. And so I always tell people, look, always, it's almost like a trust, but verify situation. It's like, always start with your gut. It's be like, okay, what am I feeling? Full stop. What am I seeing in the world? Full stop. Okay. That's my truth now. Now the question is like, how do I interpret that? Well, now maybe I can take a step back and think a little bit about how to interpret it based on my experience, like how to factor into Am I in a manic episode? Am I in a depressive episode? You know, but yet at the same time, I still want to listen to myself. I still want to see what's going on in the world. And I, I think that it's when people completely stop trusting themselves and don't engage in that process that things can really go awry. But if you at least say, I'm going to trust myself, then I'm going to check it out. You know, I don't know. I don't for anybody, like how, how you know when you're right or you're wrong. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I think, um, it took a while for me to be able to trust myself again. Um, but, it, but I think uh, another really positive thing about, uh, the group therapy program that I did is that, you know, I wasn't necessarily, you know, cause I, I, I have full trust in, um, 
my former therapist and then my psychiatrist and stuff, you know, to guide me and, you know, steer me, you know, the, on the right course and stuff. But it, it was nice to have people there that also didn't have all the answers and then and you know and kind of relying on the group talk to have these more I guess self-realizations instead of somebody handing me uh the answers or the explanations and stuff and and to just know that you know some other people also living with bipolar some people living with anxiety or depression um or a, a myriad of other uh conditions as well and and seeing how they navigate it because it's like i i experienced you know even though we had different things affecting us you know we still had rather similar uh overall feelings about everything and and how we go about trying to process it and all that you know i think that's such an important thing in, in any situation but i think particularly when it comes to mental health you need to have people who have answers, but also don't have answers. And what that really speaks to is, is the idea of there needs to be a space for validating and understanding, empathizing with, you know, accepting, Hey, I, I, I feel kind of lost here. Like there are things that are happening in my body and my mind, and I don't know how to handle them. And, and that that can be okay. Like I can be with someone who says, yeah, me too. You know, like I, I, I feel that way too. And you really need that because if you don't have that, again, you can start getting disconnected from yourself because you're like, oh, I'm, I'm just, you know, uh, this, this, this can't be happening. You know, you start to deny, you start to avoid, but then also to have somebody who maybe not saying has the answers is, is probably wrong because none of us really have the answers, but it at least is, is offering a, pos- a, a, a possible solution, a possible answer. You know, and the combination of those two things is so powerful for like the ongoing mental health journey, because if you don't have either one, you know, you only have one or neither, it's, it, it can be tough, I think, over time. Oh, yeah, 100%. And then like, it's hard when you feel like you can't talk to other people about it, you know, it's because it's one thing to be able to speak to a therapist. And I think it's, it's really healthy to have, you know, a professional opinion on things, but then if you can't translate it to the real world or don't feel comfortable, you know, uh, kind of divulging these things about yourself to other people, then it's, it, it, you know, it only takes you so far, you know, and I feel like I had, uh, first off, a a lot of difficulty talking to people about any sort of problems, whether it was personally or professionally. Um, And then, you know, thankfully through regular therapy, group therapy um, and all of that. And, you know, kind of, and along with like organically talking about things instead of um, kind of, Cause I feel like I had a lot of conversations with people when they reached like a boiling point. So then like, I kind of started to associate having these conversations around mental health as in like, Oh, people are angry at me because of how I've been acting. And, you know, to then be able to have conversations, not out of anger, but out of more concern or uh, just general like empathy and whatnot that that started making things a lot easier um you know and you know less confrontational and more just aware and all that you know yeah because one of the things that happens and this happens so frequently with people is that a lot of times when someone is whether it's in a manic episode depressed panic just anger the the person who is experiencing it, whether it's because we're angry with them or they're just near us when we're having a panic attack or a manic episode, they will oftentimes sort of reject the whole thing and sort of say, I don't want this, like this, this bad, essentially. And it's it's mostly about the fact that it's frightening to them 
both because it's 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 just jarring, but they also don't want to see you in pain. But yeah. one of the things that that can happen that's just so tough is that oftentimes we have very good reasons underlying why we're thinking or feeling something that then get rejected just because the intensity is so high. Yeah. And people get labeled as irrational or, you know, they're distorting or all these things. And look, sometimes in a manic episode, obviously when people are getting psychotic, there, there is some of that, but a lot of times, even when people are not in a manic episode, they get treated when they talk about their mental health issues and they're real and raw and honest about their mental health issues. They, they get treated like, oh, it's, it's got to be something irrational because it we, we can't have someone this upset. And that just makes it worse. And having some place where people can allow you to be authentic and to be intense and be like, yeah, I, I not only is it okay, but I've been there to some degree. That's That's just like gold with mental health. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, cause it does, it does suck when, you know, like the mania leaves this, I guess, uh, stain on your reputation. Um, cause then, you know, especially like there are some people that I, or, I mean, when I was touring, especially like a lot of people that I don't get to see very often. So if I see them, you know, two, maybe three times a year if I'm lucky. And the last time they saw me was running around like a chicken with its head cut off, you know, not finishing any of my thoughts, you know, talking at a hundred miles a second um, and just acting irrationally and thinking irrationally and stuff like that. It, it's going to leave a mark. It's going to leave an impression where the next time they see me, they're going to be a little bit more cautious. They're going to be, um, you know, they're going to be a little bit more hesitant, I feel, around me, you know? Hi there. This is Jill Hopkins from The Opus. After you check out this latest episode of my show, be sure to check out some of the other great programs on Consequence Podcast Network, including Rootsland, an original story of two friends who take a musical and spiritual journey from the suburbs of Long Island to the streets of Kingston, Jamaica. Or Standing BTS, a bi-weekly podcast covering all things BTS and ARMY. Oh, and then there's The What Podcast. It's a weekly podcast by two Bonnaroo veterans exploring and highlighting the live music scene. They're all fantastic. So head to Consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others. You know, it's very very tough because... And this is not just on an interpersonal level, but, you know, as an artist, one of the things that we crave as fans is someone who's willing to be that deep, that raw, that honest, that authentic, so that we can feel a little bit more, you know, quote unquote, I guess maybe saying we're like, we're not alone. Yeah. But the problem is, is that the reason why so many people don't do it, the reason why people aren't artists is because it's risky to share, whether intentionally or not. Like sometimes in a manic episode, we're not intentionally sharing where we're at, but it comes out, you know, and a lot of people spend their lives trying to hide what they're going through just so they don't have to deal with what you just described. And as an artist, it must be a very complicated place because that's your job is essentially to be out there so that we don't have to be, you know, so that we're more comforted. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's almost like exposing yourself, you know, and, and because I mean, to be honest and Frank, not a lot of, or there, there are some people that are not, very nice about the things that you put out into the world and view it as more objective than subjective. Like, Oh, this is, this is bad. Nobody should be listening to this. And, you know, uh, coding it with a lot of, uh, ill-intended language, you know, and then to kind of have something that you put so much time into and then to put 
you know, a lot of yourself into and kind of open up in a lot of these ways with how you've been feeling lately or what led you to this point only to have it torn down is just something where, you know, uh, I had a, a big problem with it early on with, with some of the critics kind of just being like, why can't you just, if you don't like it, why do you have to say anything about it at all? Why don't you spend your energy on something that you do like, you know, but then again, the critics aren't going to get the clicks if they aren't being dramatic from time to time. Yeah. And it was always something that uh, struck me. It's, it's, I, I understand it, you know, in the sense that we all, even as kids, I mean, there, there's a, there's a little bit of Beavis and Butthead in all of us in the sense that like, well, we think some things are cool and we think some things suck, you know? And I guess it's, it's just a part of society, but I, I do wish that um, the critical analysis of art was a little bit different. I would always love to hear from people like just sort of like, how, how did, you know, like, how did you relate to it? Like, what kind of, what kind of people do you think, like, if you're into this kind of vibe, you know, check this out or something to that effect. But it, it, there is something about as a society and it's, you know, now obviously with social media, it's become so much more prominent that it feels like, why, why do we have to wade through this intense assault on our character, on our art, on our physical appearance, on our, on our mental well-being, just in order to represent, in a lot of cases, just trying to share yourself in the world. You know, it would just be so much better if it was like, hey, you know, this is what this person's doing. I can't tell you if you're going to like it, but maybe if you like these other things or if you think this way or whatever, you might like it. So check it out. And if not, you can still check it out. But, you know, if you're looking for a sorting mechanism as opposed to like, you know, this is this is good or this sucks. And it seems to have evoked like like this, like, you know, from the depths of hell rage in me somehow because this person shared their music. Oh, yeah. And it's just sometimes it just seems like people want to thrive only on controversy and like, Oh, what's, you know, and leaving people thinking like, Oh, what kind of crazy stuff, like what kind of dramatic stuff is going to come next from this person. And, you know, kind of wanting to watch the world burn and stuff for, for no regard for anybody else, but how they feel about something, you know? (laughs) And that's why I think to some degree, why I think, you know, now and even historically, I think so many artists are stepping forward to talk about mental health stigma, because to a certain degree, not only have artists endured a lot in terms of their mental health and just because of like, you know, tour, all the things we've been talking about is so rigorous and so difficult that it can really take a toll emotionally and physically not only are people talking about these deep dark issues and like you're saying kind of kind of sharing themselves with the world but but they kind of know what mental health stigma feels like a little bit already based on the, their work being criticized because it's almost just like god i'm just being me in the world and i, I and you're like why do you hate me so much you know i'm i i have you know, like I have, I, I'm anxious. Like, why are you so mad at me that I'm anxious? You know, it's like, and it's, it, there's a, there's a parallel there that I think is intuitively, I think a lot of artists intuitively connect with it because they've already kind of been through it on a, on an artistic level. And in many cases already on a personal level before it became public. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, when real friends had first signed to fearless records and we were, uh, at this point, this would be our fourth release in four years of being a band at that point, um, putting out something like, like one release every year. Um, and then the fourth one was a full length. So it was a lot more than we'd had to, uh, put together before kind of on a deadline. Um, cause we had less than three weeks to record it. Um, with our first ever Australian tour uh, immediately after that. So it's not like, oh, we might need an extra day or two to wrap something up. Like, no, it was done or like, you know, the possibilities are endless as to what bad things could happen if we didn't get the record done. And then having 
um, the scope of what the record label could add to our reach. And then the fact that they they're putting in all this money on us, you know, if we let them down by any means, maybe the record's not good or doesn't sell well enough, et cetera. All these pressures led me to have like my first actual, like full blown panic attack where I thought I was having, um, a heart attack in Kyle, uh, real friends, bass players basement, um, to where he had to drive me to a hospital. Um, and then my ex had come to, uh, take me back home and to, to keep me company there. But it, you know, um, that was a point too, where I feel like some of the, and this is a little bit of a side tangent, but some of the health workers there didn't seem to be taking what I was going through seriously, which was a major bummer. Granted, they weren't necessarily trained to, uh, kind of tackle some of, some of the more, uh, I guess, intense mental health episodes they might see, you know, cause they kind of just like shrug it off, like being like, Oh, do you smoke weed? I'm like, Oh, every, every once in a while, they're just like, Oh, just stop smoking weed. And you won't feel like this. And it's like, well, I wasn't high when this happened. Like, you know, it's just like it, it had just come out of the blue. I was freaking out cause I couldn't come up with a part for this song. And then I, here I am, you know, and then they're just like, Oh, you just need to chill, bro. You need to just chill. Well, and you know th- that you're right. The whole concept of how mental health is addressed in the healthcare system is definitely a whole. Like we could, we could do a whole maybe a series of podcasts on that. But even just removing it from that specific situation, you know, it it, it just kind of shows you what people who struggle with mental health deal with. You know, you're you're claiming, hey, this is what's happening. I'm going to you for help. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but I imagine it wasn't intentional, but it's like, I'm not getting the help I need and I'm being kind of invalidated and I'm walking away more confused yeah. than I was before. And that's what a lot of people, when they struggle with mental health, have with family, friends, teachers, you know, even, uh, even healthcare professionals. And it just, it's, it's so difficult to, you know, after you've tried it, you know, sometimes like, you, you, you know, if you've tried four or five times before you've even really gotten to the point where you understand what's going on and you're already deflated because you're just like, man, how many people cannot get it before somebody gets it? You know, maybe I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not getting it. Yeah. I mean, luckily, luckily, though, um, my primary physician at the time did take it uh, very seriously, you know, and she had prescribed me Lexapro. Um and that had helped a lot. That's something that I went back on uh, recently or, or more recently in my current cocktail, because that did wonders for me, you know, helped me out a lot. And she had also guided me uh, in helping to suggest some uh, psychiatrists and therapists and getting referrals and stuff. You know, I, I had uh, our our manager had printed out a couple people that were like in network and stuff for for the health insurance we had. Um, and I just brought her the list being like, Hey, do you know any of these people? Uh, would you suggest any of them? And she's like, yep, this person, this person, this person, I'll write you a referral. You'll get in. And then from the, the first psychiatrist I had that was somebody that had more of a dry personality. So I didn't feel much like compassion or concern for my well being from them, but they did set me up with a therapist that was awesome. Um, so it's kind of this like ebb and flow of like first the people at the hospital not taking it seriously, but then my physician taking it very seriously, then the psychiatrist that didn't feel like they were taking it too seriously. And they, you know, it just seemed so casual when we switched up medications, not necessarily like any concern for what might happen or any side effects and stuff. But then the therapist that really cared and then said, Hey, maybe this isn't the best person for you. Let's get you to another psychiatrist who I still see to this day and stuff who is awesome. Also plays music. Like we'll spend half the appointment, like talking about gear and like, you know, he asks about the band and, and all that stuff. And then he, uh, you know, he's in a band himself, uh, records his own music. And, you know, we always got a, uh, a lot to, to BS about, you know? Yeah. And, you know, one thing I would, I would really encourage anyone who's kind of thinking about their own mental health and and, and trying to get help is be prepared 
that not everyone might take it seriously, that there might be feelings where people are dismissing or belittling or even criticizing and, and sort of on the one hand, be prepared for that. But yet at the same time, kind of like Dan, what you're saying is seek out people. There are people out there who will take it seriously. There are people out there who, you know, genuinely want to help. And sometimes it just takes a little bit of time in order to find, it's just like with anything, it's like with dating friends, careers, you know, like sometimes it just takes a little bit to find the right fit, but there are people out there who do want to help, who will take it seriously and, and hopefully can actually help people on their mental health journey. But you just, you just have to unfortunately accept that it's not everybody and, and try as best as possible not to get discouraged, even though it's understandable if you do, I just, I shouldn't say not to get discouraged too. It's understandable to be discouraged, but to keep going, you know, maybe yeah. it's a better way of saying it. Definitely. And it's, it's not something where like one pill or one visit is going to fix everything. Cause like, why am I going to have like all these pills? Why are they going to give me 30 every time? If like one would fix me, you well, know? Yeah. And that's something it's so interesting because when it comes to mental health, oftentimes, you know, it, it, when you think about the things that people turn to, to, you know, help them with their health and well-being. You know, you don't exercise once and everything's better. You don't eat healthy once. You don't have one good night's sleep. You know, you don't take your, you know, you don't take your insulin for diabetes once and then say it's okay. And sometimes I think with people when it comes to mental health, they do think, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something for a little bit and then then it'll be fine. And and look, sometimes it is. And if you're having just an acute episodic issue that's you know, very, very transient, but for a lot of people, it's mental health journey. And, and also to just recognize that, yeah, it's, it's something that most of us just kind of work on in one way or another for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Oh yeah. It is, um, continuous, always, always happening, always needs some sort of attention, whether it is, uh, as little as, uh, taking the medication every night, just remembering every night or every morning, whenever you're supposed to take it to take it, you know, uh, or it is taking the time every week or once a month to see a professional or making sure that you're exercising however many times a week to, to, uh, get all the endorphins and, and good chemicals running through your system and all that. Um, it's it's not just a one and done set it and forget it type of thing dan thank you so much for coming on the the podcast it's great talking with you again always learn a lot when we talk so and look best of luck with your ongoing mental health journey your ongoing recovery i appreciate that thank you so there it is dan lampton talking about his experience struggling with bipolar disorder there is so much to take away from the conversation with Dan. One of the things that Dan and I talk about during the conversation is the notion of trusting ourselves, especially when we struggle with mental illness. It is so tempting to just dismiss ourselves as irrational during these times. And there are in fact times when we are disconnected from reality, such as when we are in a psychotic episode. But it's important that we don't lose trust in ourselves, rather that we observe how we are feeling what we are thinking, and what we are doing, and try to understand and validate our experience. We can then decide that some of our feelings, thoughts, or behaviors are the result of bipolar disorder or aren't healthy or functional, such as when we tell ourselves we don't need to eat when we're manic. But it is critical that we don't then universally dismiss ourselves as being irrational. It is important that we continue to understand and learn from our experience and how to cope with it rather than just dismiss it because we struggle with mental illness. And as Dan and I discussed, it is optimal to find people like he did in group therapy to support us who both validate us and help us find problem-solving strategies to cope. Doing so can help us see ourselves as whole, functioning people who are learning ways of coping with mental illness to improve our lives and well-being. 
I want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project. And thanks to our sponsor, AbbVie's GettingHereToThere.com, a safe online space for the Bipolar One community to find inspiration through music and firsthand stories. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you are struggling with anxiety, bipolar disorder, depression, or addiction, and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. If you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at the Crossroads.